Thank you for that, Patty. One in the Spirit, one in the Lord. Appreciate that. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. It's a little chilly out there. So I'm glad you made it. Um, good to see you all are in a good mood. I, I actually really had to watch my attitude here today. I don't know what kind of church this is, but I've never been so insulted in my life. So, uh, oh, you want to hear what, what that's about? <clears throat> so after our Sunday school time, I noticed the kids are coming up full of cheer and joy. A lot of them had lollipops in their mouths. So Kenny and I, Kenny Green and I, made the comment to our Sunday school teacher, Corky Abernathy. <laughs> you know, we like lollipops. He said, well, based on the group I got, I ought to be giving you shots of insure. <laughs> so, thank you for that. Right? Turns out some of them do want shots of insure. I want a lollipop, one that hasn't been used, you know, already, a new one. Well, we are um, in 2 Corinthians, obviously. We've been in this book for a long time. And in chapter 6 and a lot of the chapters that preceded it, Paul uh, shares a lot about his life, the apostle. He shares a lot about his Christian walk. And really, there's a lot of pressure on him um, to defend himself, to justify his ministry and so forth, and in chapter 6, we saw that he went way out of his way to practice or engage in what he would call no-fault ministry. That is, I minister to you, I come to you with truth, with the gospel, with acts of love, and I do it in a way so that you will properly understand what God is all about, what the gospel is all about. I'm not trying to cheat anybody. I'm not trying to manipulate anybody. Manipulate anybody. If, if that causes me to have to suffer in some kind of way, to go out, to go without in some kind of way, that's okay because it's that important to me that you're ministered to properly. So that when you come to Christ, if you make that decision to follow Him, then you have a proper understanding. It's not falsely advertised of what it means to be a Christian. Well, in our chapter today, it switches gears a little bit because now the pressure to live for Christ, the pressure to be godly, is put back on the church of Corinth. You know, we have a lot of um, boundaries. God's law are boundaries. As Christians, we have lines to stay within, to walk, and so forth. And that's what we find in our passage this morning. There's, there's lines of holiness, there's lines of evil, and we're going to be challenged by this passage this morning, uh, where we are in that sense. Who are we following? What does it mean to be one in the Spirit, one in the Lord? How is that accomplished? And if it's possible to be one in the Spirit of the Lord, is it possible not to be one. Are there times when we actually have to make separations, go our separate ways? And that's what we will look at this morning. We are in Second Corinthians chapter 6. This is the last part of the chapter. And we will go to 
start in verse 14 and go to chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So he's talking about a yoke. Notice the relational terms as he contrasts light and dark, good and evil. He talks about a partnership. He talks about a fellowship. These are very uh, intimate terms here. Um, a portion, what portion? We're all in this together kind of thing. What agreement do these two opposite things have? And he's talking about being yoked. We don't see a lot of that uh, today in, in the fields, but it's still practiced in third world countries, and that is farmers will go out and they will yoke their beasts of burden. And it's a literal device, a harness, a harnessing device that harnesses. Usually it's one animal or two, oxen or, or horses or donkeys. And they come under, the, they place them in this harness so that they can do the work that the farmer needs them to do to work, to do. And they are uh, yoked together. And so obviously you would want, if you want to plow a straight line or if you want your cart to be pulled in a straight line so that you can get where you're going, you would want animals that are equally yoked. And you can imagine what would happen if you had an ox on one side and, and, and a gerbil on the other side. It's, it's going to be hard to accomplish the task, the goal that you want to complete. We're told in this scripture that among many goals that we have as believers, one of them is to bring our holiness to completion and God works that in us. And in order to, to reach that goal, there has to be a proper kind of unity, a proper kind of solidarity, or we will find ourselves going in the wrong direction like a vehicle that's out of line. No matter how fast you go, no matter how powerful your engine is, you're going to keep going to the right or keep going to the left. And so he is instructing us, informing us how we can reach this goal and how important it is to God. And how practical it is in our own lives to understand the difference of evil and goodness. And to know the intent of where each one will take us. So there's going to be occasions in our lives, if you're a Christian, there's already been an occasion in your life where we will have to draw lines. 
where we will have to, as I've entitled this message, make the break. We're, we'll have to come out. We'll have to separate ourselves from certain people, certain practices, certain beliefs, and certain things. There are times when we, we, we have to be careful that we don't get too close to the things that dishonor God. And we'll, there'll be times where we have to also not allow the things of God to get too close to us. They're not compatible. They're not in accord. They're not in agreement with God's holy purposes. Now, this is strong language, especially in our day and time when we're supposed to all be very tolerant and, and very loving of all faiths, of all people, of all practices, of all forms of morality and immorality. It sounds like strong language, and it is strong language. But it's based on the understanding of Christianity that tells us when you come to Christ, the, what God does is He completely transforms you the apostle in this book has already said that we are new creations. And when God does his work, you are literally brought into a different sphere of existence. Your nature is changed. Everything about you slowly, the, the trickle-down effect of sanctification is changed. You look at God in a different way. You look at the world in a different way. You look at your spouse and your kids in a different way. You work your job a different way. It's, it's all-consuming, all-encompassing, radical living for Christ. And so there are things that are going to have to break off in order to reach, like the, like the rockets, there's the engines, there's different things that you no longer need in your life or it keeps you from getting where you're going to go. There's this, this transformation. And our attitudes are different, our motives are different, our dreams, our ambitions. Christianity puts its finger on every part of our lives, in our mind, our heart, our spirit. There's going to be change. Because now the abiding Holy Spirit, the abiding Holy Christ lives in us and affects every, everything about us. It's supernatural. We're to, of course, always to seek peace with men. And we do have similarities and we share things in one accord with our fellow man. Now, we share the same roads. We go to the same grocery stores. Uh, we play on the same sports teams, perhaps. Watch the same football games. We have many things in common. We share the same restaurants, schools, workplaces. And we want to share with our fellow man and live, if at all possible, on our part in peace with believer and unbeliever. Now, we can have good fishing buddies that are unbelievers. We can have these things in common and we can enjoy. It's okay to enjoy things together with unbelievers. But we just have to know, as this passage reminds us, deep inside, when you get into the spirit of man, there is a huge difference between a believer and an unbeliever. And it affects our beginning and it affects our end. And though we have many things in common, we also have things about us that could not be more opposite. And that's what Paul is drawing his, our attention to. 
And the obvious conclusion is this is going to limit. It's going to limit our relationships. It's going to limit where we allow our hearts to go. It's going to limit our affections. It's going to limit our goals. The apostle is primarily talking about the spiritual side of life. If you put it in those terms, we share a lot of material things, but when it comes to the spiritual things of life, which unbelievers are still in darkness and unveiled to, there is a huge difference. We see things that they don't. We have feelings and desires and passions. I do that I did not have before I came to Christ. I know things that I didn't know before I came to Christ. And so... There's a difference there, and it's an important difference. And it makes us different to the core. So whereas we can fellowship in some things, there's other things that we have no business pretending to be in one accord. So he's singling out our relationships with people on a spiritual level. There's things we just, we just can't share any longer. As believers, when it comes to matters of faith, when it comes to matters of worship, matters of ministry, matters of truth, matters of worship in in how we worship, what God we worship, how we live. These are the things that reach to our core. What kind of teaching are we going to sit under? What kind of preaching are we going to listen to? These things matter in the kingdom of God. What is our theology? Who are we to exalt? How do we edify? What does it mean to relate to one another as believers? And how important is it to evangelize the lost? To even use that word shows us that there are those that have been found. It's a separation. It's a category. And there are those that have not yet been found and are lost. Now, sadly... We learn in the first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says they weren't doing so well with this idea of being separate, being called out by God. And we read in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 21, he's talking to the church there. And he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So you get the idea, well, what's going on? There's still some kind of pagan worship going on. There's still idolatry. There's a mixture where, where we're Christian and we, we want to profess Christ, but we still have pagan practices. We're still paying allegiances to false gods. And they're not spiritually compatible. They didn't make the clear break. And if you read that book, they allowed false teachers into their community. That's going to have an impact. And so the apostle wants to draw the lines. And he gives us lines to walk in and we are to walk between them. So let's look at why it's so important. Let's look at some reasons why it's so important that we think as clearly as the apostle Paul thinks about these matters. So here's, here's his arguments, if you will, or his case. First of all, he says, to not think in these terms is just illogical. So it's kind of like he begins with logic 101, if you will. And, and he points out the obvious. Does righteousness 
and lawlessness have a partnership or fellowship with light and dark? Doesn't something happen when it's dark and or when the light permeates the dark? They're no longer one thing. Or he goes so far as to say, what accord has Christ with Belial, the devil? Are, do you, are you seeing the differences here and the contrast here? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever, he concludes? Because all of this is wrapped up in this. And then what agreement has the temple of God with idols? I mean, you have the one true living God, and then you have what the one true living God calls every other God, a false God, a pretensive God. So there's, there's no compatibility here. Think it through. Be logical. Now, we know one thing, the one thing about evil we have to be careful of is how deceptive it is. And it can cause us to get really cloudy thinking and murky in our thinking. And, oh, we can blur these things. We can manage. We can make it happen. So the Apostle Paul just wants to start with the basics here. By your very nature, these things don't mix. It's like the old oil and water experiment. No matter how much you shake it, no matter how hard you try they're going to separate why because that's their very nature and you can't go against it so by the very nature of the transformation that takes place in christ there is a difference here you're not on the same team spiritually amos the prophet asked can two walk together if they are not in agreement meaning can you walk together if you're going different directions no you can't walk together if you're going uh, east and they're going west. So he wants us to think about it. And then secondly, he takes it to another level. Not only is this idea that we can mix or partner uh, illogical, it's, it's irreverent. In other words, now God's in the picture and it dishonors him. Not just a matter of common sense, but it dishonors God, because if we're going to mix the two or merge the two, you're talking about the Holy Christ and Satan. How can we have any kind of relationship or worship or pure worship if both of those entities are in our mind or in our hearts and we're longing or desiring or wanting to obey one over the other? And here's why it's so irreverent. Because any kind of false religion or false worship or paganism, Scripture teaches us, it's not just making a little mistake, it's demonic. There, there are demonic forces at work. So, First John tells us in chapter 4, the first three verses, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test spirits to see whether they are from God. For many, for many false prophets have gone out into the world, but this you know. The Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So the Antichrist is behind every lie, every false teaching, every false promise of deliverance and salvation and hope and joy. He's in it all. And we don't want to mix the God who does keep his word with the false God who doesn't. 
2 Corinthians, and when we get to chapter 11, verse 14, we will read this. The apostle Paul will say, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He wants it to be money. He wants us to be confused. He wants us to... to, to, He wants wrong to feel right in our hearts and our minds. He wants us to draw wrong conclusions. And he'll go so far as to disguise things, dress them up, take a false religion and just make it feel so good and look so good. And the next thing you know, the real God is not even a part of it, not even in it. See, all false religions and false teachings and ways of life, they're seductive. They seduce us into believing things that aren't true. We have nothing in common with this. Scripture says, as appealing as they may be, they're not real saviors. It's not a real hope. It will leave you where you started, lost. If you're looking for life, it will leave you dead. If you're looking for joy, they will leave you in misery. So point unbelievers in the right direction. There's a difference. There's a healthy, needs to be a healthy difference and distance between these two things. And scripture is constantly telling believers, don't go back to those things that God redeemed you from. They're dangerous. The first several chapters of the book of Ezekiel, I won't turn there for the sake of time. Uh, God, through this prophet, is warning the people of Israel And they are dabbling in idolatry. And there's this mixture of of the true God, worshiping the true God with the false gods of the neighbors takes place. And he's warning them. They've even brought things, unholy things, into the temple of God. God's not real happy about that, as you can imagine. So he warns them that if you don't purge the temple from these idolatrous things, there will be consequences. I'm going to destroy it. I'm just going to destroy it. And the Jews think, God's people, the Israelites, they think, well, he can't do that. That's impossible. Because he lives there. He's in the temple. God lives. He's the holy God. He lives in this temple. We know about the presence of God in this temple, and he can't destroy himself. So they didn't move, they didn't act, they didn't repent. So what does God do? He leaves. Remember the word Ichabod? The presence of God is removed from that temple that has been defiled. See, God is not going to be bound to geography. God's not going to be bound to things that happen in buildings if they are opposite of his nature. He will not be worshipped in that way. And so he removes himself. He's a holy God. He makes the break, if you will. He, he separates. So we don't want to bring idols into the house of God. We don't want to bring God into a house of idols. First Samuel chapter 4 talks about when the Philistines, you know, the Israelites and the Philistines are always fighting and battling. And unfortunately, 
Uh, so they sometimes they won and sometimes they lost. And on this occasion, the Philistines beat the Israelites and captured the ark of God. And they bring it back into their town because they're so victorious into their city. And they set the ark of God, symbolic of the, the Israelites' worship. And they bring it into their temple and set it next to their god, Dagon, the, I think the fish god, if I remember right. And what happens when they wake up the next morning? Well, that their God is on the ground. Their statue, their structure, their idol. Heads gone, severed. Hands are severed. And as if that wasn't enough, enough of God sends pestilence and a peg. And sure, you can have a group of people. That through the years, no longer, they don't make the break. They don't keep themselves holy, separate. They don't have a high view of Scripture, a high view of God. And they allow pagan things and lies and false teaching in the church. And next thing you know, they have fashioned a God in their own image. The true God is no longer there. He is not to be found. So there has to be times when we as believers have to make sometimes these hard decisions. Either I, if we're in a church where there's false teaching, strong false teaching, and the, and the church has given up the fight, either, either the, the false teachers have to go or I got to go. And that's a sad point because it is so hard to create unity in a church to begin with. And I would not be quick to exit a church without a good, good fight for truth. But it's irreverent, it dishonors God to even think that these things could be compatible at all. Third, I have it's contumacious, which is a fancy word for rebellious. It's defiant, so it's illogical, doesn't even make sense. Dishonors God. And it's an act of rebellion. Why is it an act of rebellion? Because this passage tells us it's a command. Therefore... Because of who God is, because of what God has done in your life. Therefore, go out from their midst. You don't think that way anymore. Your, your longings have changed. Your goals have changed. Come out of that. It's a command. It's not like a, a suggestion or a tip for, for happy Christian living. Don't be rebellious. So it doesn't mean what some try to make this. Let's, let's put some boundaries up here in this teaching so we don't carry it farther than what God intends or not as far as what God intends. Because some will take this passage and put a boundary line of separation that's way closer than what God intended about separating. And then you have even believers separating from other believers, true believers. Because of the fact that, well, I'm holier than you, or maybe I'm more righteous than you. So my boundary of holy living is here. And we have Christian sects that remove themselves from even other Christians. And that's a boundary. I would say that's adding something here to this. Because I don't want to have anything to do with any kind of evil. And the idea is that, well, I'm really not as evil as you are. It's a misunderstanding of the Christian walk 
and the process of sanctification and justification. We're holy because God makes us holy. We want to be careful about setting up boundaries of association with other people that God does not set up. So we're still in the world but not of the world, right? As Noah prayed this morning, how can we go and obey the command to go into the world and to go into the midst of the lost if we're just going to stay in our little Christian community and even alienate ourselves from other Christians? We can't be obedient to God in this way. So we have to be careful we won't, with the lines that we draw. There's the balance here. And we saw in Galatians 2. Where, thanks to the what we were uh, told was called the James Gang, the Apostle Peter digressed. And he alienated himself. He removed himself from the food and from the Gentile that God made one in Christ. So he set a boundary that was not to be there. He removed himself. He separated himself. And he was called out on that. You don't take this thing. We don't just set up boundaries where we want to set them up. There's a balance in here. Some of you might be thinking, well, you can't talk about this passage without talking about marriage because it's applied so frequently to marriage, and rightly so. It's the same concept. And I'm going to talk about that. But as a matter of balance, the Apostle Paul teaches... That if you are in a marriage, one of you gets saved, this doesn't apply to you. He says, stay together. Because you are light in that relationship if your spouse will allow it. You know, if there's not like demon worship and sacrifices and so forth taking place. If the relationship will allow it. But if it doesn't allow it, then let the spouse, the, the unbeliever, be the one to leave. So we want to to temper this idea of the boundaries. But if you're not already in this relationship, you haven't made that decision yet, this absolutely applies. Do not be unequally yoked. Look at the relational words we're talking about in one accord, in fellowship, a partnership. These are marriage terms. You will hear those words at almost every marriage ceremony. If you're not yoked yet in this way, do not yoke yourself. Put yourself under this vow and this harness. The marriage is all about the things that we're supposed to remove ourselves. It's all about the oneness. It's all about the accord. You're a team and you're pulling together and your goal and vision is to serve God as a team. That's why God puts us together. He decides, I want you not to serve me Single at this time. Now I want you to join with this person and serve me as a team, as a unit. And the more, the longer you are together, the more we become one. That's the whole purpose. We are in agreement. We're walking in the same direction, same passion, same goals. Why? Because we have the same God. And God has put this in our hearts and our minds. So it's a unity. It's important here. Marriage, according to Ephesians, serves a purpose of a a metaphor of the love that takes place on a spiritual plane, a heavenly plane, the love of Christ for his people. And he goes 
even to the extent of dying for his bride. That's the kind of sacrifices that are made in this relationship. So if we just apply this even a little bit, it makes it's illogical, it's irreverent, it's rebellious, if you think about it in these terms, to disobey the Lord in this area and to choose for ourselves someone that we know does not bless the Lord as we sung this morning or worship him or have that desire for him. And probably the saddest thing as I think about it, for one that chooses to make this kind of relationship is that now if you're a true believer, you have a divided heart. You've put yourself in a position to have a divided heart. That can't be good. Because you love your spouse, but you love your God. And now there's not a unity there. There's tension, potentially. And you have material things in common, but not spiritual things in common. As a pastor, uh, the scripture gives me permission to officiate wedding ceremonies uh, to certain groups of people and not to others. So if you to be equally yoked, if you're an unbeliever or an unbeliever, then you can be yoked because you're equal. In that, If you're a believer and a believer, then you're equal. Scripture does not give me permission to officiate ceremonies where you have unequally yoked people, believers and unbelievers. I don't have permission to do that. And I don't do that, and this church holds me accountable to not do that. So there are unions, covenants and vows that are made, just as I can't bring together uh, a man and a man or a woman and a woman. So there, there are restrictions on me as a pastor in my service and obedience to the Lord that are also in place. So we want to think about this as especially if we are, you know, in our choices of dating and we're, we're praying for Christian spouses and so forth. This comes into play. We want to be careful where our hearts, where we let our hearts go. And we want to be careful that our need for companionship with God always trumps our need for companionship with anyone on a man-to-man or a woman-to-woman label. Ephesians 5, 6 through 11. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now that's, those are hard words. I'm not so sure that we can obey the Lord in this way and not have to practice some pretty serious self-denial. And I'm not so sure that we can practice this without offending others. It's a matter of obedience. It's a hard decision, and God has asked us as his children and as his people to make it. And then lastly, it's costly. Now notice the terms that the Apostle Paul uses. Uh, Go out from them, be separate, Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. So he's quoting an Old Testament passage to back up this this truth and this principle still valid in the New Testament. God's still holy. He still sanctifies. He calls his people 
away, out of certain lifestyles and worldly living. To sanctify means to be set apart. So if you have been called and chosen by God, he has literally plucked you out of the world, or as Jude would say, snatched you out of the flames and put you into his service. He set you apart now to serve him. It's a sanctified, it's a beautiful act on the part of God. And when we come out and be separate, we have the blessings of this close fellowship. This family relationship of fatherhood, sonship, father, sons and daughters to him. Ezekiel 20, 34, the apostle is referring to. And he says, as I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you and I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. The God is promising the Israelites that when you, when you repent of your idol worship and all the pagan stuff that you brought into the temple and brought into your lives, when you repent... And you've learned the lesson after being chastised for your disobedience. I am here to welcome you. And that's a beautiful word. Today, if you have company coming to your house, say you've invited somebody to dinner, usually you know if, say, if it's 6 o'clock, you're looking out the window because you want to warmly welcome them in. And a lot of times uh, you, you see them drive up, and then you're there at the door. You open the door for them. And usually there's... There's arm gestures, and it's saying, I am welcoming you into my home. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. This is an appointment that we've made to fellowship together, to spend time together. That's what, that's what that word means. That's what God is willing to do when we come out, when we repent and separate ourselves from idolatry and false worship. And it can be costly if we do not. Let me close with this example in 2 Samuel 7. And it's this, again, for the sake of time, I won't go there, and I think most of you are familiar with this story. It's about Solomon. King Solomon, a very, very wise man. Now, what did Solomon was known for his wisdom, but he was also known for something else. He was very wise and God blessed him, but he became very disobedient. Uh, you might say he never met a girl he didn't like. He didn't like. Never met a girl he didn't like. So he has wound up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And they're foreign. It's not so much that they're foreign that's so wrong, but as foreigners, they worshipped foreign gods and had foreign practices. And so what does he unwisely do and disobediently do? He brings them in. He yokes himself to them. He partners with them. And predictably, what happens? It moves his heart. That pulling and that tugging of being under that harness of something that's false it pulls him in that direction. Nehemiah 13, 26 says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So, 
are we ever safe? Is there ever a time where we can let our guard down and not keep this logical distinction between good and evil in our own hearts and in our church, in our families, in our relationships? When we join ourselves to evil, what are we doing? We're separating ourselves from God. But when we join ourselves to God, we're separating ourselves from evil. It's one or the other. And when we separate from God, we do it at great cost. So what is pulling us this morning? Where are we in this as God's children? As we think about the yoke, where are we headed? Where are those that we have partnered with or fellowshiped with or that we're in one accord? We have decided to associate with them. Where are they headed? What are their dreams? What are their ambitions? Is our heart being pulled in the wrong direction like Solomon's day after day after day? So this passage is intended to help us to to think clearly and, and passionately about our God, our true God, our living God how we are living before him. It it doesn't have to be so complicated. But where is our heart? What does it long for? What does it run to? What does it trust in? That's the question that we're being challenged to answer in the presence of God. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. And at this time... I'm going to ask the, hand it over to our young adults group so they can um, share with us their experience of their first ever conference at CrossCon. So are you first, Abby, and you're going to get us started?